The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show... There's a lot of talent in the federal government and who work with the federal government who could start incredible businesses. They know how to run major agencies. They know how to run and manage people. They've been doing it in, a, in an environment that's challenging sometimes. And if they went outside and started, they'd be able to do some pretty magical things. I think that we should be able to tap into those those hidden geniuses here in the D.C. metro area. Some people are going to hurt. You know, we are still, for all intents and purposes, a region that is far reliant on the federal government for a lot of its economic health. And welcome to What's Working in Washington. We continue to be at the crossroads of business innovation entrepreneurship here in the nation's capital. And the show is another reminder of how people get things done. Three different perspectives. We're going to be talking with an entrepreneur, Justin Anotipole, who starts a company coming out of the federal government and is a former attorney. His journey is a very interesting and important one, not only for his new artificial intelligence startup, but also as a good template for people who are currently working in the federal government or in industries like law to remind them how you can also become an entrepreneur and start your own business. If you are going to start your own business, there's no question that mentorship is an important part of that. Janice Omodeki is involved in finding mentors for entrepreneurs, particularly minority women entrepreneurs, starting businesses who need to find good advice to help them grow their businesses. Very important, obviously, for the entrepreneurs, but also another great indication of how a diverse community like Washington, D.C. can provide resources to start businesses of all types. Speaking of starting businesses of all types, Andy Medici is going to talk with us. You know, you might know he is at the Washington Business Journal, where he is a reporter on money and finance. This coming changes in the Trump budget, whether it's the Trump budget or congressional budget, is looking like it's going to have a significant effect on the money that's being spent here in our region. Get ready to be more entrepreneurial. It's going to happen. So What's Working in Washington is a place where you'll learn how to be entrepreneurial and also the trends will affect whether or not and how you can grow your business. That's what's in store for you this week in our show. Over the last few years, the federal government has spent an enormous amount of time and money to try to become more innovative. And many of those efforts have borne fruit both internally, but also from the standpoint of creating a new class of entrepreneurs, people who are starting emerging businesses here in the D.C. region. An example of that is our next guest, Justin Antoni Pillay. He is the founder of Wirewheel, an artificial intelligence startup here in town. Justin, thanks for taking some time with us. Thanks so much, Jonathan. You spent some time in the federal government working around the issue of innovation. For a lot of our listeners, it sounds almost counterintuitive, but describe to us what exactly you were up to when you were working the federal government around bringing technology to bear on federal problems. I'll tell you. So I ran the Economic and Statistics Administration at the Commerce Department, and that's the part of the Commerce Department that includes the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Economic Analysis. So in a couple of days, years from now, our folks will be knocking on every door to count folks all over the country. And uh, when Secretary Pritzker came in years ago and the president had started, uh, President Obama had started a very similar effort, uh, we had two main goals. One, one was we need to do our job better. We need to be more efficient about how we do our job and we need outside thinking and better technology to do it. So that was number one. 
Number two, uh, we viewed ourselves as having an incredible public resource, all kinds of information and data that we've collected, both at the Census Bureau about people, weather information, patent information, trade information, and we wanted to make it more easy for different parts of our country to use. We wanted nonprofits and charities and small and medium-sized companies to be able to access and use that data just like hedge funds do, just like bigger companies. Those were the real focuses. And so we started by building a team internally to let us do that, and that's where our focus was. So you did it for a number of years. Would you say that it was a successful effort? It, it really – I was – I had – low expectations to start in the sense that when you're really going out to attract uh, world-class data scientists and software developers, before I was really part of the community, I had a guess that DC wouldn't be the best place to do it, honestly. Mm -hmm. But it turned out there were a lot, there's really a lot of talent here in the area, and there were people that were willing to come to DC because they cared about the mission. If you told people, look, what I want to do is I want to help a nonprofit. I want to help a charity understand their own mission and execute better. And we can do it for hundreds of charities. We got people to come from all over the country to join us. And we got a lot of the local talent to take less money in order to execute. So we were able to build just an absolutely terrific team. I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Jeff Chen, who was the chief data scientist at Commerce. We recruited him. He's really a world-class uh, data scientist. He'd, he'd been in the Bloomberg administration and set up some incredible programs there, been in a number of big companies, and he helped really uh, supercharge our efforts. And we did some very, very cool things. Justin, you had this experience in prior life. You were practicing attorney and a partner at a prominent firm here in town. So you've been uh, involved in transactions and business and government advisor and a technologist. Yet when your term was over, you decided to become an entrepreneur. Did a lot of your former colleagues and brethren in the legal industry and government look at you and think you'd lost your mind? <laughs> there are still people who say I may have lost my mind, but I have to tell you, it's really exciting to be part of this community at this moment, and especially with the amount of support and talent that's around here. And I'll say it a couple very brief ways. One is, um, there is there really is an unbelievably sophisticated technology and advisory committee to help you get started. And everything from the National Science Foundation to NASA, my, one of my co-founders came from NASA, mm -hmm. and the local uh, university base along with the development communities is, is strong. So you can get some unbelievable folks to be partners with you. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley over the last couple of years, and there is something about this community that's very, very supportive. You know, you have some tech entrepreneurs who are really making it, and I suspect a lot of these folks have been part of your community for longer than mine, um, but they're willing to help, and they're willing to answer questions, they're willing to point me in the right direction so that I'm not starting at zero every time. So I, I don't know, it's been good so far. There, there's definitely challenges, but it's been good. What do you think are the biggest challenges, uh, or put another way, what you're describing is the DC entrepreneur community that I know, but I think a lot of people don't know about that community. How do we do a better job of making sure that innovators know that this is a great place to start a new technology or any sort of entrepreneurial business? I have to tell you, so what you're doing is important because I, my sense, and I'm guessing your sense, is there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of folks in the federal government and who work with the federal government who could do, start incredible businesses. They know how to run major agencies. They know how to run and manage people. They've been doing it in, in an environment that's challenging sometimes. 
And if they went outside and started, they'd be able to do some pretty magical things. I will tell you, this is a combination point, which is there are some unbelievable funds. Like, for example, NEA is a local fund, very large fund, mm. terrific team here. Uh, and there's some other funds who have a, really a presence here, Revolution Capital and, and, and others. Uh, I think the seed community here is a, maybe a little bit smaller than there are in some places, and that is an impediment, right? So if you go to Silicon Valley, there are an awful lot of funds and firms that are at the very, very beginning stage. And as you're starting out, you need support kind of at every stage. You need seed support and then going up the line. And I think that'll be one of those things that will develop here over time. I think that what we're seeing uh, from the perspective of what's working in Washington and in my day job working in innovation what a lot of entrepreneurs do really well here is they use Uncle Sam as, uh, in fact, an angel investor, get an R&D contract, uh, getting uh, an SBIR grant or something to start a business, and then being able to find their way into institutional capital. I think that you are right. There are a lot of people in town that have the talent and the incipient skills that they could be a leader or a founder of a business. How did you know you were ready to take on the, the mayhem of being a business founder? First of all, it was really inspiring to see what you could do with pretty small resources. You know, we didn't have a ton of funding. We attracted the right team. We leveraged outside companies. You know, there are a number of them that are really well known that were willing to help. And then our own talent in the government was unbelievable. We had a project, for example, where we wanted to be able to share healthcare information. Uh, who's insured, uh, for example, for smaller population or for children. We wanted to be able to get that information out to more uh, of the United States. And we had career folks at Census who were partners with some of the technologists from day one. And they built a tool that is now in use all over the place that very easily shows you who's insured and where. Um, so what I saw is that there are people that are willing to join and be inspired. It made me feel like it's worth giving it a shot. It's definitely a risk. Uh, and you feel that every day. I'm sure you know this, right? Part of the challenge is you're, you're a little bit on a wire and you have to check yourself on a regular basis. But it's also a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And it's an enterprise with people doing it to help you from make sure you're not lonely, I would say, is probably the most important thing we can do for any entrepreneur. No, I, I totally agree with you. And getting the word out it like you're doing is very important. So we're looking forward to hearing more about Why Are We in the Future, Justin. And thanks a lot for taking the time. It was Justin Antoni Pillay, a newly minted entrepreneur changing the world here in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much, Justin. Washington region, there are many people who would like to start businesses but don't know where to begin or if they've started a business, need help getting to the next level. Providing those resources is a huge challenge and also an opportunity. Janice Omadeki is founder and CEO of The Mentor Method, and she is right in the middle of solving this problem for DC entrepreneurs. Janice, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I can't imagine a, a higher and more important way for somebody to spend time than helping entrepreneurs figure things out. What are you doing at Mentor Method to help DC entrepreneurs grow their businesses? So with the Mentor Method, we're the eHarmony for connecting minorities and women in tech to career mentors from companies that are interested in hiring more diversely. So we're providing a pathway between people who are looking for mentorship to um, excel in leadership positions and also sort of branch out into entrepreneurship with people who have already paved the way for them to do so. 
Minorities and women are two groups of entrepreneurs that are generally underserved from the standpoint of attaining risk capital. And I have been told in other circumstances here on the air and elsewhere that these entrepreneurs tend to outperform given the opportunity. Recently, we had a guest on who pointed out that female-run companies outperform male-run companies by a factor of roughly 20%. Yeah. And that's surprising, actually. I mean, not surprising that we do that because women are amazing and we can focus and multitask unlike any other. But it's shocking that we still have to have these conversations in 2017 and that despite having this hard data that actually shows this, improves this, we still need to take extra steps and extra energy to make sure that we are closing the leadership gap between men and women. So as you work with your entrepreneurs, it sounds to me like there's a fair bit of of coaching. What kind of attributes do you counsel emerging entrepreneurs, emerging women, minority entrepreneurs? What do they have to have in the way of skills that are different from the skills that uh, a middle-aged white male has to have? Well, I cannot speak on the perspective of a middle-aged white male. I can do that (laughs) if you'd like. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, Based on my experience, the first thing is resilience, being able to take um, a series of no's, learn from them and figure out if it's a matter of changing your messaging or if it's a matter of your elevator pitch or your business model and being open to pivoting, being flexible, also being coachable and teachable, having that um, eagerness to learn with every opportunity is something that's really important for entrepreneurs to possess as well. I would completely agree with that. I I will often remark that I think the most important attribute that any successful entrepreneur needs to have is self-awareness and the Mm -hmm. ability to take in data and self-correct, which I think is one of the reasons why often uh, women-owned minority-owned businesses outperform because if you're subjected to uh, the unspoken no of classification, it means that you have to be that much stronger in your ability to improvise and turn things around. Absolutely. I think that's something you hit the nail on the head, actually. Um, I know for me, I recognize that while I'm 29, I sound a few years younger. And so being aware of those sorts of things, how you're perceived, the way, you know, even before I open my mouth, how somebody might read me prior to even making the sale or getting into how important and critical what we're doing at the Mentor Method is, um, being aware of those things and knowing how to work around them and also how to use them for your own advantage. I think that's also really important. So years ago, I I left the United States and I went over and lived in the United Kingdom for about seven years. And when I got there as a student, uh, I realized very quickly everybody had an opinion about me as soon as I opened my mouth. You know, they, they liked me or hated me because I was American, but they didn't see me. And and the lesson I learned there was something I, I tell my students, it's jujitsu. You know, if you understand somebody's unspoken no better than they do, and you address it without calling them out, it often puts them at ease, and in some ways you're ahead of the game because they're intrigued by you. Is that something that you think uh, is an important skill? Yeah, I definitely think that's an important skill. I also think that, um, so for example, with entrepreneurship, going into an investor meeting, or going into any sort of um, negotiation, knowing your numbers and being able to speak knowledgeably about the business makes a huge difference. So like I was saying before, you know, sometimes um, people perceive me to be a lot younger than I actually am, or maybe they have some concerns about my ability to run a business. But if I know my numbers, I know exactly the vision that I have for the company, I know how to get there in the next five years as well as the next like one, 
three and seven years as well. So being able to um, speak to the business and the business case and focusing on what every investor and every business person wants to know right out of the gate um, is something that's been really helpful for me. And also just trying to find common ground with people. I think just because you're different doesn't mean that there's something wrong. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the other person mm -hmm. as well for not being able to understand that. So being able to find common ground and just talk to people like they're people. So at the end of the day, we all eat, sleep and breathe and want to do our very best every day. So being able to relate with that has been helpful. I don't know how many people really focus on this, but I believe that there are more millionaires of minority descent here in, in this area than I would say anywhere else in the country because so many successful entrepreneurs have grown government contracting businesses, for example, or service businesses or family-owned businesses. Do you find that that's an untapped resource from the standpoint of mentorship and role modeling for minority entrepreneurs? Absolutely. I think that you're 100% right. Being able to find those businesses that have been extremely successful, they might not be as widely publicized, they might not be in the Spreads of Fortune magazine, but they have that wealth of knowledge, that grit, that drive, that determination that really um, you need in order to build a million dollar business or a $10 million business or a billion dollar industry. You um, Being able to learn from people who have paved the way is crucial. So yeah, I think that we should be able to tap into those those hidden geniuses here in the D.C. metro area. I, I know a fair number, and and I think that it's un, it's unappreciated when people talk about entrepreneurship how many people have grown successful businesses with, with the government here. Mm -hmm. Janice, I'm sure many people listening to this are, are thinking this sounds like the kind of thing they'd want to be involved in. If somebody wants to be a mentor involved with uh, Mentor Method, how do they find you or Mentor Method? Yes. Well, if you are interested in being a mentor, please email me, Janice at TheMentorMethod.com. If you're a company that's interested in increasing your diverse hiring pipeline, which I'm sure you would be given this conversation, um, also email me, Janice at TheMentorMethod.com. And you can find me on Twitter at TheMentorMethod. There you have it, folks. Another example of someone who's getting stuff done here in the greater Washington region. Exactly the kind of story we want to highlight on what's working in Washington. Janice Samadeki, go get them. It was great to have you. Thank you. Much is made of the interrelationship between the greater Washington region and the federal government. With the upcoming changes potentially in the Trump budget, this region may be facing some significant headwinds. To talk with us about that is Andy Medici, money and tech reporter at Washington Business Journal. Andy, it looks to me like this region's about to get whacked. What do you think? Well, I mean, from the talk that you hear around Capitol Hill, it definitely seems that way. You know, the Trump administration, they've been working on a budget for just a bit now, and they came into office. And as you can see, there have been talks about, you know, the EPA getting cut. You know, a lot of agencies that uh, might not survive uh, the way that they had for all these years, and that would be trouble for our region, definitely. Well, as we look at the budget, it appears that there are a number of agencies that are likely to get cut. But of course, the president's budget, there has been a president's budget that's been approved by Congress since I think the beginning of time, right? Yeah, it's been a long time since there has been a budget approved. And you know, I always tell people, though, that there is something important about the president's budget, which is that it's what the president wants, which can never be an insignificant thing. He's going to present it to Congress. Congress will, of course, hem and haw about the details and think about what they want. 
But at the end of the day, this is the best indicator of what the Trump administration thinks is its priority. And if that priority is cutting the federal workforce, then you can be guaranteed that it will be happening in some way, shape or form. Well, you have your hands in entrepreneurship and business in various ways through uh, your work at the Washington Business Journal. How do you think this is going to unfold? Uh, how's the private sector looking, the folks that are outside of the federal government? Do you think that that part of their economy is ready to absorb this uh, this harm? I'd say to tell people to look right back at sequestration, you know, that was the best indicator of what we would do with uh, medium term spending cuts. And, you know, it didn't do that well. We saw a lot of uh, job cuts. We saw some negative growth for a little bit. But, you know, it's going to depend a lot on how these cuts fall. You know, Virginia's much more dependent on defense spending, which looks like it might get a boost. Maryland, however, far more dependent on health human services with the NIH and the FDA. And D.C.'s got a, a widespread, so it really depends on where the chips fall. But you can rest assured that some people are going to hurt. You know, we are still, for all intents and purposes, a region that is far reliant on the federal government for a lot of its economic health. Now, Stephen Fuller, the economist, has been raising the alarm around this for a while. And he has come out over the last uh, week or so with research that shows over the last couple of years there hasn't been much in the way of diversification away from the federal government. Have you been following that story? Yeah, you know, Stephen Fuller has been talking about this for quite some time, the idea that we need to diversify away from the federal government and into certain high-profile, sort of high-yield sectors, you know, professional business development, technology, and those sorts of things. And he has been dismayed, I guess, by what he sees as a lack of progress. We've have, we have had job growth, but not nearly as much as we would like, and not nearly in the sectors we would like them to be. He sees a lot of that job growth in sort of the lower-paying hospitality and retail sectors, which, while it's good to have, I think, jobs over no jobs, it's probably not as good as, for example, having that $85,000 or $95,000 entry-level cybersecurity job. It's interesting you mentioned cybersecurity. Um, I'm working right now with some folks at American University on a s study around the cybersecurity industry, and it's becoming pretty clear through the work that the cybersecurity industry is heavily reliant on the federal government and services as well. So uh, do you get any indications whether or not things like cybersecurity will be adversely affected by this budget? It's a difficult one to game out because cybersecurity is both independent spending, but it's also embedded into every agency budget. Every time a manager says, you know, let's upgrade our computers, there's a cybersecurity component and spending that goes along with that. You know, I'd say that it's going to be tough to game out. I think each agency is going to have to make their own choices. And I think that a lot of the tech companies that are focused on defense spending will probably do okay. The defense sector seems to be the area where the Trump administration and Congress seem to agree that uh, more needs to be done and more needs to be spent. Uh, but until all those details shake out in a final spending bill and not, for example, a preliminary budget, it's going to be hard to tell. So about six weeks ago, Andy, you were on the show, and at that time we were talking about the state of the local credit markets and the banking industry shrinking. Looks like interest rates may start to go up. What are you What are you seeing and hearing with respect to the availability of credit, or what uh, what effect is going to be on small business here in town? Well, you know, uh, there are some people who are saying that the credit markets are strengthening. You know, uh, higher interest rates do mean that banks become more profitable. You know, for a long time, banks have suffered a bit on the profitability side because they couldn't make money on deposits. They had to find other places to park their money. But you know, just the other day, Radio One announced in their filings, you know, and in talks with their shareholders that they're hoping that these stronger credit markets mean that they can refinance a lot of their debt. So there are some companies out there that are hopefully looking to refinance that debt to both get a slightly lower rate, but at the same time, as those credit uh, scores go up and that credit agency strengthen, you're going to see more people, I guess, doing more of that type of business. And what of the local tech 
community. We just had South by Southwest last week. A bunch of <laughs> this town was almost a was almost a ghost town if you're trying to find a local tech entrepreneur to have coffee with. But um, I felt like left behind. You know, it was sort of a Twilight Zone episode for me. But what's your sense of the state of the uh, the tech entrepreneurial community here? Well, that would explain why no one was returning my calls. Well, no, you're a reporter. That's why everybody's <laughs> afraid of you. You're a reporter. That's why they invented caller ID, I think. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the tech community, you know, the tech community is very resilient in some ways. You know, a lot of the great innovations are sort of born out of adversity. They're sort of born out of um, difficulty and sort of trying to smooth over people's difficulties. But at the same time, you know, greater Washington's tech economy is not uh, not huge. It's not as big as other places. And a lack of federal spending might mean that, you know, some people who are out of work might not be able to do, get the work they want. They might not be able they might not be able to get the funding that they want. You know, this is all interrelated and we're all part of the same ecosystem, no matter how far away from the federal government we are. So I think it's gonna be something to watch over the next few years as federal spending either goes up or goes down. So what are you looking at right now as a lead indicator for how the rest of the year is gonna unfold? Uh, that's a great question. So I think uh, you know, looking at the president's budget's good. I think the congressional reaction to the president's budget is gonna be even more important. You know, Congress is unified under Republicans, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are unified in their ideas. So I think for anyone who wants to read the tea leaves, take a look at what they're coming up with in Congress, in the committees, see how that affects you. And, you know, just make sure you keep your eyes and ears to the ground to make sure that you are ahead of whatever's coming next, because it might be a bumpy ride. It strikes me that while there may be philosophical express philosophical differences between the Trump budget and the kind of budgets we've seen in the Republican Congress over the last couple of years. I, I think that it's pretty good money to be made on betting that there's going to be shrinkage in non-defense spending here. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. You know, right now, Congress is working on its alternative to Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as it was called, their own health care bill. And I think something that doesn't come up a lot is that for entrepreneurs to be successful, especially in the innovation economy, health care is a concern, getting that health care, making sure you have it. And so uh, a lot of these provisions look like they might do away with some of that portability to be able to move from one job to the other. So that's something that we're going to have to look at, whether or not premiums go up, which they may uh, under this new plan, um, depending on who you are and where you're from. But looking at whether you can get health insurance, even if you're, for example, working on your own startup or working in a small company that doesn't have the ability to do that yet, I think that's going to be very telling for the innovation economy. So the net net is that if I want to get things done in D.C., I got to get ready to roll up my sleeves. This may be a bumpy year. I, I think you're right. You know, let's keep your eyes to the keep your eyes on the horizon, keep your ears to the ground and just always uh, stay alert for anything that might change. Andy Medici, as always, thank you for joining us. Money and Tech Reporter, Washington Business Journal. You're the man with the plan and keeping us up to date. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. And that's been another episode of What's Working in Washington. I've got to tell you, we've been doing this show now for two and a half months, and it is absolutely incredible how many people there are in this region that have great stories to tell. And when they come into the studio, how they come up with other story ideas as well. The greater Washington region, the people are getting things done. If you've got an idea for a story or you want to come on yourself, please direct message us at Twitter at What's Working DC. Make sure to tell your friends to download our show at iTunes. And Jonathan Aberman, that's me, and Tracy Madigan, our producer, really enjoy what we're finding out about how things get done in this great city. And that's what's working in Washington. See you next time.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington, the power to get things done. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.